This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 90, Winston's Revenge. King Edward VII opened the new session of Parliament personally on Valentine's Day in 1901. He had waited a half a century for this moment and meant to enjoy himself. Everything about the day was to be done up in style, and many of his conquests were in attendance. Enjoying his moment almost as much as he did. If only the delighted king knew of the turmoil that was to be in the form of Winston Churchill. Churchill himself had waited a long time as well, and nearly died on more than one occasion to enter this august chamber. He, like the new king, was determined to enjoy himself, but his delights were to come at the misery of others. As Edward's mother, the queen, had just recently died, the appearance of the men and women assembled had reversed. The women who usually wore colorful gowns now wore black, and the men who usually wore black now were the only ones sporting colors in their rows of scarlet and ermine. The House of Commons had been built in 1708 and had not changed since its first 100 years. The floor was called the well. The speaker sat in a carved chair. To the chair's right were five rows of benches, upholstered in green. This is where the party currently in power sat. To the left of the speaker's chair, the same arrangement, but here sat the opposition. The bench on the right, closest to the speaker's chair, was where the prime minister sat with his or her cabinet, and this was called the treasury bench. After Churchill was sworn in, he headed for one of the back benches to the right of the speaker, 
crouched up his body, pulled forward on his top hat in a jaunty manner, and stuck his hands deep into his pockets. From under the brim of his hat, he studied the chamber. This was to be his battleground for the next 63 years. Many of the faces sitting upon the green upholstery were the same as when Churchill's father, Lord Randolph, had reached his height while in government and then watched as his career was ruined by ill health but sped along by a select few. And those men were not sitting across from Winston on the other side of the well. They occupied the same benches he did, and they were the enemy, had been his father's enemies, and were now his enemy. Winston wasn't trying to ruin the Conservative Party or bring on its destruction. Well, at least not at this moment in time. His vengeful heart was singling out those who had singled out his father. And at the top of that list was the man who had been in power even before Randolph was ruined, Robert Cecil, Marquess of Salisbury. The Prime Minister was still there, but older now, and hopefully weaker. There was even talk of him retiring soon. That same talk spoke of Arthur J. Balfour, Salisbury's relative, the current House leader, taking over when the Prime Minister stepped down. But Winston had to be wary. Despite Salisbury's age, his power base had only grown since the days of Lord Randolph. By now, the ranking Conservative had no fewer than seven male relatives, either sons, nephews, or cousins, sitting on one of the benches to his right. In fact, some members, in lighter moments, called the House the Hotel Cecil. Also on Churchill's list was another, though not of the Cecil clan, and that was Joseph Chamberlain. Chamberlain was a power within his own right and had been set against Lord Randolph ever since Winston's father stood for election within lands Chamberlain considered his personal domain. The Tory challenger had defeated the elder Churchill, but Joe remembered the arrogance that almost cost one of his men their seat. Across the well were the supposed enemies of Churchill and his fellow conservatives. The liberal imperialists were led by their most notable members, Rosebery, Herbert Asquith, Edward Gray, and R.B. Haldane. They opposed the conservatives, but supported the Boer War. The liberal center, however, led by Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, or C.B. as he was called, was against the aggression towards the Boers from the first day. C.B.'s goal was to make his party dominant and so step into the Prime Minister's position. Of his anti-war supporters among him was the young Welshman, David Lloyd George. He had his own ideas about what to do with the Conservative majority. As Churchill was to speak that afternoon of February 18, 1901, the House was full. The liberals of the various factions sat across the way, staring at him. Jenny and her new four sisters-in-law were also in attendance. Churchill, against the advice of older conservative MPs, had decided to speak of the Boer War. They knew he did not have the experience of debating off the cuff and worried for him after his speech was over. Thus far, Winston had always been one to memorize speeches and not have to debate afterward. And so, the remarks of his maiden speech had been committed to memory, just like his father had done. 
Whatever came afterward, Winston would just have to wing. But Lloyd George, who others had come to hear, would speak right before Winston. And because of procedure, Winston had to speak to whatever George ended with. But the young, intelligent Welshman jumped about with his topics. Instead of moving forward an amendment, like he was expected to do, he attacked the war against the Boers and spoke of Kitchener's cruelty towards the Boer women and children. Now it was Churchill's turn, but his first remarks had to be pertinent to George's last remarks. Just then, an older member sitting next to Winston whispered, quote, Why don't you just say, instead of making his violent speech without moving his modern amendment, he had better have moved his modern amendment without making his violent speech, unquote. This would leave Winston free to then launch into his own pre-planned diatribe. Winston, relieved, stood up and used those very words. This brought a laugh from his fellow conservatives. He then launched his career. He started off by saying Lloyd George's remarks probably meant very little to the Boers, suffering because of the current conflict. Quote, no people in the world received so much verbal sympathy and so little support. If I were a Boer fighting in the field, unquote, he then paused. Quote, and if I were a Boer, I hope I should be fighting in the field. Quote, this made the conservatives mumble and the radicals cheer, but it was his first of many verbal traps. He went on when the noise died down a bit. Quote, I would not allow myself to be taken in by any message of sympathy, not even if it were signed by a hundred honorable members, unquote. The Tories, or conservatives, roared with laughter. The trap was sprung as Winston referenced a pledge signed by a previous group of a hundred radicals to support the king of Greece, who ended up giving in to the Turks as British military aid never materialized. Winston then set and sprung another verbal trap, this one for the Irish nationalists. He spoke of the Boers who continued to fight on. This caused those gentlemen to cheer, but then mentioned that much of the fighting had been done for the British by serving Irishmen. Having made his clever remarks and scoring points for himself and the conservatives, he then went on to what had to be the most difficult part of his speech. He spoke of Kitchener's actions against the citizens of their enemy, and he defended the commander of the British Army in South Africa. Winston started off by saying that Kitchener's actions were no worse than what the Germans did during their siege of Paris from the Franco-Prussian War. Citizens located near enemy troops were fired upon and starved in order to compel those in uniform to surrender. In fact, Kitchener was, quote, justified by precedents set by European and American generals during the last 50 or 60 years, unquote. But Churchill was careful to plot his own course, accepting neither side's view of the war. The Boers were justified in their desire to resist, just as the British were justified by whatever means needed to bring the war to a close. If the Boers continued to resist, the British had the right to keep after them. Winston's voice then came down from its pitch. He spoke warmly, even longingly, of his father, thanking the honorable members for listening to him, and, quote, a certain splendid memory 
which many honorable members still preserve. Unquote. Churchill had accomplished everything he set out to do that day. The conservatives believed he put up a good fight. The liberals believed he had struck at them and their views, as was expected. But really, certain conservative members should have been put on notice, as the young son of the former firebrand conjured up the ghost that had left the chamber in shame. The groundwork had been laid, but that was for the future. The older members led him to the house bar, applied Winston with drink, and congratulated him on his speech. Quote, Everyone was kind. The usual restoratives were applied, and I sat in a comfortable coma till I was strong enough to go home. Unquote. Lloyd George stopped by and offered not congratulations, but criticism, which Winston deflected. A strange beginning to what would become a powerful partnership in the early years of Churchill's career. George was not the only one to miss the flag, which carried Randolph's name, being subtly waved before the House. The liberal newspapers criticized his first speech. The conservative newspapers praised him for living up to expectations. Over the next several months, Winston continued to apply himself in supporting the conservatives, but in his own way, after his own fashion. He spoke up for their point of view, but usually with his own unique vision. His stock rose with the older men, their trust in him also rising. And as his speeches projected such imagery, his words, like brushstrokes on a canvas, of course, no one knew of the hours he spent rehearsing in front of a mirror, that he soon became a celebrity to the point where only his first name was needed. Then one knew who you were talking about. And as he did and said what was expected of him, soon many on both sides projected onto him what they wanted to see. Churchill moved ever forward, ready to spring his trap upon his first victim. Now that Winston was firmly entrenched within the party, he even dedicated the River War to Salisbury. It was time to shake that party to its foundations. With the coming of spring of 1901, Winston gave another, though less subtle, shot across the bow. As the snows began to melt, Winston entered the house and sat, not where he had been on his usual back bench, but, quote, in the corner seat from which his father delivered his last speech in the House of Commons, unquote. The correspondent from the Daily Mail who noticed this also noticed the similar body language from the young member's father. This physical transformation of Churchill was also noticed by a writer from Punch. He wrote that it was, quote, less in the face than in figure, in gesture and manner of speech. When the young member of Oldham addressed the house, his hands on hips, head bent forward, right foot stretched forth, Memories of days that are no more flood the brain, unquote. and that effect was what Winston was after. But he was doing more than gesturing like his father. He now proposed tighter budgets and avoiding conflicts outside the empire's concerns, proposals that eventually brought down his father. Over those weeks, his colorful speeches were peppered with references to Secretary for War William Broderick. Broderick had been one of Randolph's most vicious critics, and his time had come. During one speech, Winston said that it pained him when the Secretary for War said, 
Quote, it is by accident that we have become a military nation. We must endeavor to remain one. Unquote. And though Salisbury missed the missive due to his age, Joe Chamberlain did not. His eyes and attention narrowed in on the MP from Oldham. But it was his ears that picked up on the first sound of discord. On April 23rd, when Winston was speaking to the Liverpool Conservative Association, he declared his feelings for a proposed bill that would increase expenditures for the army. He was not in favor of it. Quote, Any danger that comes to Britain would not be on the land. It would come on the sea. We cannot expect to meet great wars, for I think our game essentially is to be a naval and commercial power. I cannot look upon the army as anything but an adjunct to the navy. Unquote. Winston believed the words he used, but that wasn't the point. In attacking the proposed budget, he was attacking Broderick. Deny the enemy what he wants and watch him react. And his attack became unequivocal on Monday, May 13th, when he spoke in the House. It was a speech that he had worked on for six weeks, and to make sure he did not lose heart at the last minute, sent a copy to the newspapers. Now he was committed. He started off with describing the details of his father's fall. He, too, had fought the good fight of controlling spending. Then Winston read a part of Randolph's resignation letter that stated his desire was only to pursue a common-sense course of, quote, retrenchment and economy, unquote. Putting down the letter, he declared himself amazed that the budget for the army had gone from 17 million pounds to 30 million and now the Secretary for War wanted another five million. Churchill, now in the spirit of the chase, raised his voice. Quote, Has the wealth of the country doubled? Has the population of the empire doubled? Have the armies of Europe doubled? Is there no poverty at home? Has the English Channel dried up and we are no longer an island? Unquote. He went on to say it was time for a real conservative like himself, to speak up against this increased expenditure. Then Winston got down to brass tacks. Broderick wanted three army corps. But why? If Britain found itself entangled with a major European power, three corps would only be the beginning of what was needed for victory. No, three corps, quote, are enough to irritate. They are not enough to overall, unquote. There was no missing what Winston was up to at least this part of his strategy. All the newspapers wrote of his uncanny reincarnation of Lord Randolph. The regulars in the gallery said the same. As for his conservative comrades, they, though irritated, believed or convinced themselves that the son was merely exercising his father's ghost from his system. Now that he had gotten it out, reminded everyone of his father, Winston and they could return to business as usual. The opposition, on the other hand, cheered him and hoped he was sincere. And wherever Churchill may have been politically, his words were indeed sincere and from the heart. This offensive coincided with Churchill's belief that the bench of cabinet ministers was full of men tired and played out. He was going to avenge his father's memory while climbing as far and fast as he could up the ladder. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. 
I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Winston ended his speech by calling the Army Plan of Broderick's, quote, a humbug and a sham, unquote, and, quote, the great English fraud, unquote. And then, surprisingly, several other young Tories spoke afterward, agreeing with Churchill. And with this Churchill-led attack, Winston scored his first victory. The cabinet agreed with his premise, saying that the three army corps would not, quote, begin to fight Europeans, unquote. Broderick's plan was put away, and the minister himself, angered beyond belief, resigned, but was given a position in the India office. Ironically, once the brouhaha was over and the emotional element removed, the army bill passed. After all, Wilhelm II, who had been crowned as Randolph left the government, was older now. He was also belligerent and declared his desire to expand Germany's borders. Clearly, Britain would need its army, no matter its size compared to its navy, in the future. It could be argued that Winston was more focused on his father's enemies on the island versus those of England on the continent. Winston, reveling in his victory, knew he had gone as far as he could alone, now that he had declared his war openly. He needed allies. So, after Broderick was gone, Winston formed a club, made up of young, powerful MPs. One of them was Lord Hugh Linky Cecil, one of the Prime Minister's sons. They were called the Hooligans, and Winston was their leader. Their pledge, probably taken only a bit more seriously than that of the Guinea Pig Club when its drinking club was formed, was to embrace outrageous parliamentary hijinks. The others may have been bored or truly desirous of change in Britain, but either way, Winston harnessed and used their collective influence. Each Thursday, they invited a guest to dinner, and due to their family names, anyone invited you better than not to show. Even the Prime Minister was made a guest, but he made them come to his house. But the one guest that changed Winston's life and British history was Joe Chamberlain. After arguing over the merits of allowing a reporter to return to Britain for writing against the Boer War, though he had served his time, the Conservatives said no, the Liberals yes, and were joined by the hooligans, Winston still managed to charm the powerful MP. So, as he left, Chamberlain turned to the young group and said, quote, You young gentlemen have entertained me royally, and in return I shall give you a priceless secret tariffs. They are the politics of the future, 
and of the near future. Study them closely and make yourselves masters of them, and you will not regret your hospitality to me. Unquote. One can assume he meant, in return for his advice, he was thanking them for the dinner and for what they could do for him in the future. Most of those sitting at the table thought no more of it, but not Churchill. He studied the subject and found himself rejecting it in total. The idea of joining together the vastly scattered pieces of the empire through protective tariffs, giving preferential treatment to goods moving around within the empire, and adding on duties to those goods coming in from beyond the empire, seemed like a good idea on paper. But free trade had been the way of things within the empire for the last 50 years. Chamberlain was talking political revolution, but Winston was still feeling vengeful. And Chamberlain, having no idea what was coming his way, intended to propose his imperial preference, as he called it, after returning from South Africa in 1902, where the Boer Treaty had been signed. The free traders, as they were to be called, regardless of party, believed that their way allowed relatively cheap food to come into the empire and help feed the people. They also felt that free trade paved the way for peace worldwide, whereas protective barriers led to tension, which led to war. As for the conservatives, despite Chamberlain's influence, they were also split. In fact, three members of the cabinet quit over the idea of voting on tariffs. Chamberlain, along with everyone else, suddenly realized he was dealing with dynamite and was happy with the lull that came after the departure from the cabinet. But the quiet did not last. On July 11, 1902, as the colonial leaders were discussing the duties, they were all for it, Prime Minister Salisbury stepped down. And, as had been planned, his nephew, Arthur Balfour, known as AJB, stepped into his place. Again, there was a lull, and Chamberlain, grateful, planned on using this time away from the sensitive topic, however long it lasts, to shore up his side of the question. And as he was the one who organized getting out the vote for the conservatives, his influence was powerful. The conservative newspapers immediately backed him. Still, some prominent Tories held out. Link Cecil, his brother Robert, and Winston. And of the three, Churchill had done his homework. Seeking help from Mowat, the man who helped Lord Randolph understand financial matters, Winston crammed as many theories, principles, and arguments coming from both sides of the subject as he could in the eight-week lull. Mowat also recommended a long list of books which Churchill devoured. And by the end of that intensive study period, Churchill's belief in free trade, which was now absolute, was based on two very personal reasons. First, he was living proof of what an open society could allow. He had raised a respectable fortune without any capital, just his talent, risking his life a few times, and hard work. The second reason, even more personal, was when Sir Edward Hamilton told him, quote, that his father would have shared, unquote, in his belief. For Winston, the case was closed. By the spring of the following year, 1903, Joe Chamberlain, believing his forces sufficiently rallied, decided it was time once again to renew his push for protectionism. So, on May 15th of that year, he launched himself with a speech 
in his power base of Birmingham. He criticized anyone who believed imperial preference was not best for Britain and its future. Surely, he was the face and voice of the Conservative Party when dealing with this issue. But wait one tick, or rather, six days. As in six days after Chamberlain's speech, Winston addressed a crowd at Hoxton, putting his case for free trade forward. He could not see how anyone could, quote, persuade the British people to abandon that system of free trade and cheap food under which they had thriven so long, unquote. Then it was time for Winston to face off with Joe in the House. A few days after his Hoxton speech, he said, facing the well, that protectionism, quote, means a change, not only in the historic English parties, but in the conditions of our public life, unquote. And then, raising his flag of rebellion and revenge even higher, Winston wrote a letter addressed personally to Balfour, the new Prime Minister, on May 25th. In it, he declared his loyalty, if the leader was for free trade. Otherwise, quote, I must reconsider my position in politics, unquote. Arthur Balfour may have only been the Prime Minister for ten months, but he had already learned not to ignore Churchill at any time, especially if he was threatening to resign. Up until now, the leader trying to stay above the fray was letting Chamberlain control the issue, but Churchill was pulling the Prime Minister down from the clouds. An answer was wanted. When his reply came the next day, May 26th, it was weak made absolutely no sense, and invited the prowling Winston to keep his game going, full pace. Quote, I have never understood that Chamberlain advocated protection, unquote. But his plan may, quote, incidentally be protective in character, unquote. And really, it was just, quote, an instrument for fiscal union with the colonies, unquote. With a defense like this, Winston was emboldened to pounce, and pounce he did, but laterally. Forty-eight hours after reading AJB's response, Churchill contacted Campbell Bannerman, or CB, the leader of the Center Liberals, and proposed a joint plan to stop Chamberlain and his scheme. For now, this was as far as Winston was willing to go. That is, until he started meeting with CB and other Liberals. Winston found himself nodding his head when the men spoke of their goals, allowing more people to vote, an eight-hour workday, and less expenditure on foreign and imperial affairs. But there was one item on their agenda they could not imagine Winston agreeing to, and that was Irish Home Rule. Lord Randolph finished his career staunchly against it, and they assumed the son was of the same mind. But Winston replied to their delicate questions about the topic, that he agreed with them, or, rather, it did not matter as much to him as it once did. The vengeful son was still there, but now he was thinking of his own future more than his father's past. And, looked at logically, there was little room to move up in the Conservative Party. But within the various parties on the left, the way seemed clear all the way to the top. But waging war against the number two man of the party, Chamberlain, was not the same thing as jumping ship. That Winston had yet to do, and that was because he did not really know where the opaque Balfour stood on the issue of imperial protection. So the war against Chamberlain continued, 
and increased in intensity. In many ways, the two adversaries were evenly matched. Winston had more conservatives within the House on his side. To prove this, when he organized his free trade idea into the Free Food League on July 13, 1903, 60 Tory MPs came on board. But Chamberlain had the loyalty of the men who could actually vote in House elections, and his Tariff Reform League was organized to offer battle to Winston's. The next phase of their battle began during that summer of 1903, as Chamberlain took his Tariff Reform League and went from city to city, giving speeches about the positives of his idea. Churchill never wanted to turn down a challenge, followed Joe to every one of his stops, and gave his own speech, supporting free trade. All the while, the tension was mounting within the party as well as the country. Here, for once, Winston's youth gave him an advantage, as his strength allowed him to endure this grueling schedule. Joe, much older, was winding down, but pushed himself on. Still, he had not gained as much ground as he had planned or hoped to. For this to succeed, it needed his attention full-time. So, on September 12, 1903, Chamberlain stepped down from his position to spend his days defending a resolution he believed best for Britain and the Empire. This enemy of Winston's father did not leave in disgrace, but he did leave. Another score for the ghost of Lord Randolph. Then Winston, perhaps giving Balfour too much credit, hoped a cabinet reshuffling would soon take place. The question was, would it be lined with protectionists or free traders? But Balfour, making himself Winston's enemy, maintained the status quo and then went one step further by coming down, though gingerly, on the side of Chamberlain. Churchill, losing what respect he had for the Prime Minister, knew it was now to be a fight out in the open. He wrote a letter, but wisely did not post it. He did this on several occasions, possibly just venting, but it read, quote, I am an English liberal. I hate the Tory party, unquote. But his unsent letter ended with, quote, nothing need happen until December at any rate, unless Oldham explodes, unquote. But explode it did. And Churchill should not have been surprised, as he was the one that set off the bomb. Now that Balfour had declared himself, Winston felt he was free to do the same. So during a by-election in Ludlow, Churchill endorsed the liberal candidate, mostly because he was for free trade. And that was it for Oldham's Tory executive committee. On December 23, 1903, the body drafted a resolution saying that Churchill had forfeited their support with his acts against party policy. The resolution was brought to the entire body on January 8, 1904. But Winston's defense was intelligent and solid. Quote, when Mr. Balfour succeeded Lord Salisbury, he solemnly pledged himself that the policy of the party should be unchanged. And yet at Sheffield, only a year afterwards, he declared for a fundamental reversal of the policy of the last 50 years. Therefore, it is not against me that any charge of breaking pledges can be preferred. Unquote. But the committee's vote was a foregone conclusion. Minus one vote, they lined up against the ungrateful young pup of an MP. But once more, Winston showed his procedural mastery 
over the older gentleman. He offered to resign. But the committee and other conservatives, after thinking it through for a few minutes, realized if there was another election, he would either split the conservative vote or win outright as a liberal. The honorable gentleman of the House did not take Winston up on his offer, which allowed the young firebrand to rage against the establishment while sitting amongst their ranks. Here is a taste of what he said while he and the rest of the House waited for the season to end. The Conservative Party was now, quote, the slave of great interests, quote. The Tories were, quote, yearning for mediocrity, unquote. His fellow ruling members were, quote, ready to make great sacrifices for their opinions, but they have no opinions. They are ready to die for truth if they only knew what the truth is, unquote. But all this was a kiss on the cheek compared to his remarks about Balfour. And the Prime Minister, goaded beyond controlling himself, rose on one occasion and struck back, saying Winston was breaking the rules by coming here with prepared hateful phrases, wasting everyone's time. But as for fighting back, Balfour left that to his comrades. They called or shouted every name at Winston they could think of, like Blenheim Rat and Blackleg Blueblood. And in one instance of politics spilling out into the street, the Hurlingham Polo Club blackballed Winston's application. But as much as Winston loved polo, he loved even more this larger contest he was in the middle of. And like in polo, he was the star. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But there were other ways for the conservatives to fight back. On March 29th, 1904, as Churchill left his seat, readying to speak, all assumed he would be once again launching a diatribe against imperial preference and its supporters, Balfour rose, turned and went through the glass door behind his seat. Churchill was stunned. He spoke of the, quote, lack of deference and respect, unquote, due to an MP who held the floor. But that was just the beginning. Then the cabinet rose from the treasury bench, followed by most of the conservative backbenchers, until the only ones left to the right of the speaker's chair was Winston and a few free trade conservatives. This gesture shook Churchill to his core. He suddenly looked frazzled and exhausted to his fellow conservatives and to the liberals on the other side who tried to cheer him on. But the mass exodus had no answer. Churchill returned to his seat. This momentary deflation of Churchill's spirit was only the beginning. On Friday, April 22, 1904, he again rose to speak. By now, Churchill had entered his radical phase. This was brought on after reading several books on the effects of poverty. And the people who were suffering weren't along the edges of the empire, but right here at home. This suffering was being endured every day by people of the home island. So the Churchill who stood now had come full circle perhaps really never seen the poor before, 
With more passion than anger, he spoke of trade unions and their need for government support against big business. As usual, he went on and on with many painful examples and with eloquence. But then, just short of speaking for an hour, he had reached his peroration, which, hate him many did, they knew they were in for a show and a bit of poetry. Winston raised his right fist, about to smash it into his left hand, while shouting the most moving part of his speech. Quote, it lies with the government to satisfy the working classes that there is no justification. His mind went blank. The mouth remained open, thinking the words would come to him, and then he would start up again. But they weren't coming, and would not come that day. Up until that moment, Winston had memorized all his speeches, so there were no notes to reference as he looked around, buying time, just waiting for the thoughts to flow once more. But they did not come. Nothing did. He tried to go on anyway. He repeated his last sentence, but stopped in the same place. All the words after that point were gone. The liberals cheered him on, but it did no good. Winston sat down, put his hands over his face, and thanked the honorable gentleman for listening to him. Those of the house who witnessed this scene could only think of one thing, Lord Randolph. The son carried himself like his father, sat in the same seat as his father. Would he also go the way of the elder Churchill? Keep in mind that the public never knew the truth of Randolph's illness, Jenny, saw to that. Was this the beginning of some career-ending madness for Winston? Many on the right side of the chamber hoped it was. The next day the newspaper proclaimed, quote, Mr. Churchill breaks down, dramatic scene in the House of Commons, unquote. Now everyone knew, and from those people either rose pity or glee. Such was Churchill's character to have people love or hate him. But whatever did happen to Winston on that afternoon, it was temporary. Perhaps the workload or lack of sleep caught up to him. But either way, after a few days' rest, Churchill was back to his confident, buccaneer ways. It was like, in today's terms, of restarting a computer. The blockage was cleared by a purge. And one of the things that helped him bounce back was that two weeks earlier, Northeast Manchester had accepted him as their liberal candidate. He would be back in the house when its new season started, no matter what, but on the other side of the Prime Minister's chair. So, on May 16, 1904, Rinston rose to give his last speech as a conservative. This time, however, he rose with notes in his hand, but he rarely glanced at them now or in the future, and went on to predict the fall of the Tory party from power. Quote, extravagant finance was written on the head of their indictment, and it will be written on the head of their tombstone, Unquote. But the conservatives were ready for him once again. Being led by the prime minister and the treasury bench, the majority of the Tories left the chamber. But this time, Winston smiled as he watched them go. And on the last day of May, Punch reported the following scene. Quote, House resumed today after Whitson holidays. Attendance small, benches mostly empty. Winston, entering with all the world before him, 
where to choose, strides down to his father's old quarters on the front bench below the gangway to the left of the speaker. Unquote. This seat was used by Lauren Randolph when the Tories were in the opposition, and Winston's father, from this very spot, waved goodbye to the outgoing party of Gladstone. Sitting beside Winston now was Lloyd George, who took his hand in welcome. When asked about his switch of parties, Winston coolly replied, quote, Some men change their party for the sake of their principles. Others, their principles for the sake of their party. Unquote. And with Winston's crossover, the liberals now had as their main platform, not Irish home rule, which had been their most contentious plank for so long, but free trade. And the country, more or less, followed along. Chamberlain, still speaking out, crossing the country, found himself addressing near-empty halls. His message to the masses of, quote, think imperially, unquote, did not ring with them. How could it? They were focused on the roof over their heads and the food on their children's plate. But it only got worse for Chamberlain. Besides no one listening to him, reports came out about Chinese coolies being used practically as slaves in the mines of South Africa. And as the former colonial secretary, these disheartening stories were laid at his feet. On December 12, 1904, Winston wrote to Cochrane, quote, I believe that Chamberlain will be defeated at the general election by an overwhelming majority, unquote. His prediction came true. Joseph Chamberlain, who had always been dashing and then rich and then powerful, had lost much of what was dear to him. The fall broke his spirit. After hearing of his loss, specifically the number of votes against him, Chamberlain suffered a stroke. The rest of his days were spent in an invalidic stupor. Revenge is rarely pretty, either for the victor or the victim. But the Chamberlain political machine was too big to collapse along with its leader. So Austin, the eldest son, would step into his father's place. Eventually, the younger Chamberlain held the posts of Foreign Secretary, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and First Lord of the Admiralty. But his half-brother, Neville Chamberlain, would go on even further. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, right here, or as I'm going to refer to myself from now on, R.H. Uh, I'd like to thank a couple members for joining on. Thomas M. from Pont Verde, Florida, or as I'm going to call him from now on, T.M., and Levi A. from Sigtuna, Sweden, but who will be referred to from now on as L.A. And then for his donation, I'd like to thank Stephen T., who lives in northern London, U.K., who has invited me for a pint, and hopefully when the tour goes off next year, I'll be able to take you up on that. So, I hope you meant it. But, of course, if we do meet, I will refer to you as ST, alright? So, thank you very much for listening. I'll get episode 91 out as soon as I can. For those of you who um, are ready to get back to the war, if you noticed on this episode, I was able to jump several years. I plan on doing that um, more, and we will get through this soon and get back to the action. I promise. Take care, everyone.